Why don't we pray as we look at this tricky psalm. Lord, thank you for what we've seen week on week as we've gone through some of these highs and lows in the Psalms. Thank you for the words that you have given us to express the things that we're going through, the feelings that we have. And so we pray that you would help us this morning in Psalm 44. Speak to us, we pray. Be at work in us and among us. Give us the words now, perhaps, for how we're feeling or for the future when hard times come. In Jesus' name, Amen. I remember about five years ago, um, when we were still living in Birmingham, I was preaching at a neighbouring church in a little place called Bourneville, probably heard of it if you like chocolates. Um, and I received a phone call on the Saturday night at about 11 o'clock, just the day before, and just the day before the Sunday when I was heading there to preach. And we'd been out and we were returning home and my mobile buzzed more than once with a number I didn't recognise. It was the days before PPI calls, so I picked it up, I answered it. And with that call came the news that, completely out of the blue, the foster child of the pastor of the church where I was going to be speaking the next day had, had just died, just not woken up from their afternoon nap. He was about two. No warning. Nothing. So, of course, I was up late that night writing another sermon. Something more appropriate for a a confused and grieving and heartbroken church. The verses we looked at the next morning were this psalm, Psalm 44. That they gave some words to the complex emotions that this fragile group was going through. It was only a church of about 30. You can imagine something like this is enormous. It's huge. So I have something of a, of a love-hate relationship with Psalm 44. I love it because it, it slightly appeals to my awkward side. It, it doesn't obey the rules when it comes to lament psalms. It doesn't behave like it's meant to. It doesn't let us put God in a box. It, it leaves unanswered questions. And so, so we've seen week by week by week, it is very real. It leaves things hanging. And so because it's very real, it's very painful. It, it verbalises the pain of God being distant, of God being absent, of his people not knowing why. Why are we going through this? You switch on the news and it's a psalm for our times. It's an extraordinary psalm. People say Psalm 44 is the book of Job at the national scale. Like Job, we have suffering and hardship and trials and scorn and question after question after question. But unlike Job, at the end of Psalm 44, we're not told why. There are no answers. 
There is no clarity. That there's nothing. We we know verse 17 to 18. It seems they have been faithful. He's he's pretty certain about it. All this came upon us. That we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. And so you, you reach the end, and it's just left hanging. There's this air of mystery, loose ends, but left completely untied. No real attempt to deal with them. There's no Psalm 73 style light bulb moment, flash of inspiration and clarity. We'll see that next week. The psalmist says, I went into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived the end. He gets it. It makes sense. Or or Psalm 88 is another really hard one. It's well known. There's loose ends. But I, I wonder if Psalm 44 is harder because at least in Psalm 88, God is addressed in the present as being the God who saves me. Here in Psalm 44, there is a bit of hope, but it, but it comes in the past, and it's left in the final verse, verse 26. So he remembers God's character. There are loose ends. It, it doesn't behave as lament psalms are meant to behave. It seems to work as both a mourning and a crying out, a prayer to God of the individual, the, probably the king. And at the national level as well, the people the king represents and leads. And what you get is in 1 to 8, you you see him recounting days gone by, looking back at God's faithfulness in the past, back to his track record. And it doesn't seem like they're rose-tinted specks. This is what happened. They, They genuinely were the good old days. This is what God did. But it's what he did in the past. Let me read it again. Verse 1. We have heard it with our ears, O God. Our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our ancestors. You crushed the peoples and made our ancestors flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the hand, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you we push back our enemies. Through your name we trample our foes. I put no trust in my bow. My sword doesn't bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God we make our boast all day long. And we will praise your name forever. The repetition, you, 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 you did this, Lord. You gave us victory. Just Verse 2, see it there as an example. With your hand you drove out the nations. You crushed the peoples. Is it anything of them at all? No, he he clarifies, he underlines, he puts it in bold, verse 3. It says, all God's doing, it was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. Or verse 6, I put no trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. And so, verse 8, we praise God forever. It's not military strategy or tactics or their might or their prowess or the king and his skill. At the start, there is no uncertainty. It is the Lord. He brings them victory. And so they say, verse 8, what can we do but praise you? Such a brilliant perspective and and mindset to cling on to when things are good. I just look back 12 months from now, us at Maudlam Road, and we were acknowledging our weakness and our uncertainty and a year of transition. But the Lord has been very kind. It's not been a a year of being static or just weathering the storm, but consolidation and growth in many ways. 
hear many testimonies of people who have grown in maturity and depth and wisdom, people who have deliberately sought to do what they love and take Jesus with them. Do you remember that? Or in term times, we're having problems with numbers, struggling to fit in at times. So we ought to be thankful to him who provides, to him who is at work, to he who equips and enables daily blessing after daily blessing, his amazing goodness and kindness, in so many ways, personally and corporately. The flip side, though, isn't it, when you think of verse 1 to 8, is that we are perpetual glory thieves. And we love it to be about us. When things go well, then we so easily get proud and we pat ourselves on the back. But if verse 1 to 8 is true, then there is no room for that. Because it is he who is at work. It is he who gives the victory. Perversely, at times, I think it's easier sometimes to, to resign ourselves to God being in charge when things are difficult. Because there's nothing else we can do when we've tried all our stuff and looks hopeless and go on then, Lord, you have a go. But when life is good, when things are going well, it can so easily become about our merit and our effort and our doing. As Pat said in our announcements, We are currently in a time of prayer and fasting as a church as we're thinking through the future, we're thinking through the kind of church the Lord wants us to be, we're thinking particularly about buildings in this short window that we have. Do come and visit on Monday at 8, to have a look around and pray on Wednesday at 8. And a bit like a year ago, there are uncertainties and there are things that we don't know. We're just not sure, but we do know the Lord is sovereign. And if it's right, and if this building comes to us in an extraordinary way, then it will be him. It will take hard work and wisdom. But it will be down to him. He is the one who gives victories. He is the one who is sovereign. And so 1 to 8 is the psalmist looking back, thankfully, it's joyful. Looking back to good times. If it was musical, it would be major chords and it would be upbeat and there would be lovely melodies. And then we come to 9 to 16. And the victory and the blessing and the good times have gone and now it is failure and despair and rejection. Gone is the joy, gone is the thankfulness, gone are the major chords here with discord and gloom and confusion. Because the soldiers who have returned have come back defeated. No doubt news of deaths of friends, loved ones. Gone is the joy of 1 to 8 and here is the anguish of 9 to 16. Do you notice though that the psalmist's struggle isn't wondering if God is sovereign. He is not questioning that. That's one false move that people often take, that there's no theological U-turn. We'll think about a bit more about that later. Despite his current experience in 9 to 16, he knows God is still sovereign and still in charge and still powerful. And that's the presenting problem. His experience of life does not match up with what he knows of God. That's the problem. 
As I look down again at 9 to 12, and notice the yous again. But now you have rejected and humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. You made us retreat before the enemy, and our adversaries have plundered us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep and have scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You have made us a reproach to our neighbours, the scorn and derision of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. The people shake their heads at us. You. God is sovereign. And we might not understand this. But he still believes it. And there's mocking and there's ridicule. We... We've seen it week on week, the power of words from those looking in at the suffering people of God. Come on Israel, where's your God now? You're not so confident now, are you? How do you feel now? This so-called God of yours, where is he? Come on. He's left. So what do we do with these kinds of verses? Where do you go when life is like this? I think it is a particular theological thorn in the side of old covenant believers. Deuteronomy 28, when faithful, they expected blessing, perhaps, in the Lord. Remember God and he will remember you when you're in the land. We see them getting beaten up and exiled and disciplined and punished for disobedience, for not being faithful to him, for running after other gods. And we understand that, but here seemingly they have kept their side of the covenant. They have been faithful. And so where has God gone? Verse 17, all this came upon us though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. But you've crushed us and made us a haunt for jackals. The reality of suffering believers is not far from our TV screens or from the internet or newspapers at the moment. It's it's why we've actually changed the programme to look at this psalm today because of what's going on in the world. We've already heard it this morning as Amy's led us in prayer. Or as Pat introduced our time together. We think of the suffering around the world. Brothers and sisters today in Iraq or Syria or Nigeria or China, Ukraine, North Korea, all around the place. People suffering and being persecuted for belonging to Jesus today. And we cry out with them to him, Lord, where have you gone? What are you doing? We often say that when God feels distant, we can try and be helpful but be slightly glib and say, well, who's moved? The implication is, well, God feels distant because you have moved, so you solve the problem. You examine yourself for any underlying sin. You sort out your devotional life. You you get your life back on track. That's often very helpful. But we need to take care because in the psalm here, who's moved? God has. So what do you do? Where do you go in these kinds of moments? 
when God doesn't fit into the box that we make for him, or when our systems of understanding, our frameworks, fall short of reality. And whilst Job could say afterwards, now my eyes have seen you, there's an agonizing silence in Psalm 44 and for the people of God. I'm aware as we look at Psalms like this over the summer, perhaps particularly this one today, which is very bleak, maybe this is just quite close to the bone for you. What life is like. Maybe it says you read the news or watch TV and you mourn with and for brothers and sisters around the world. Or maybe it's, it's because life hasn't turned out as you wanted it to. The dreams and the hopes and the aspirations and the plans and ideas have faded and fizzled and this is where you are now and it's not really where you thought you would be. Or maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's personal suffering, physically, mentally, spiritually, socially. Stuff that we know about and stuff that you keep to yourself. Maybe it feels like you are in Psalm 44 and the Lord has has gone. He feels a long, long way away. It's very real, isn't it? What is the answer in Psalm 44? I take it in simple terms, there isn't one. (laughs) That is the reality of it. God is God and he doesn't fit into our boxes and our systems. And so there is no simple answer from this psalm. But here are four things to reflect on when life is bleak. Four things to reflect on, but they're not answers. First thing to say, we consider God's goodness to us in the past. We, we do one to eight. We remember his blessing and his goodness in rescuing us. We remember personally his blessing poured out upon us. Days, years, months gone by. For some people, a, a spiritual diary is useful for just those kinds of things. They, they journal life. They write down answers to prayer. They remember and record reality so that in the midst of the drought you remember the days of plenty. And you don't forget his goodness. You don't forget, verse 26, his unfailing love. So when life is bleak, consider God's goodness in the past. Second thing, I think, is to commit ourselves to his sovereignty. We commit ourselves to God still being in charge, still being Lord. And even if we don't understand, even if we're confused and disorientated, we we affirm that we will trust him. Remember that that, that's the problem in Psalm 44 in a sense, that what he knows of his God and what he experiences in the world just don't match. But he doesn't go back and rewrite his theology He doesn't try and make God a bit more tame or a bit less in control. He affirms that God is powerful. So there is a particular branch of theology that seeks to deal with hardships and pain and suffering. And it says that God deliberately limits himself in terms of his power. 
So eventually he's not really all-powerful and he is surprised by what happens and he is taken aback by sin and suffering. And he can't help because he's choosing not to. It's a very popular theology for some. But our psalmist won't have it. The reason he is raging is because he knows that God is powerful and he is loving. And so he doesn't know what is going on in 9 to 16. He doesn't rewrite what he understands of God. He affirms what he knows of God. And so thirdly, he cries out to him. You see, if you make God not all-powerful, or if he is surprised by what happens, or if he is taken aback by sin and suffering, there's not much point, really, in crying out to him. Because he's not all-powerful and he can't solve things. But that is not what our psalmist does. He cries out. Verse 23, Awake, Lord! Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We're brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. He cries out because he knows what God is like. And we've said it each week, but we'll say it again. We're just not very good at this. It is all right to be honest with the Lord. The Psalms that we've said are God's gift to us in putting words in our mouths to speak back to him. As, as Jesus, Jesus suffers agony on the cross, he, he verbalizes the Psalms. God the Son shouting them back to God the Father. Take these words and make them your own and that is okay. If Jesus can do it, I guess we can. Is what they're there for. Have you ever done that from the depths? We're taught not to complain. Many of us to bottle it up, to minimise our outbursts. But to cry out is okay. It is good. We cry out to the Lord. In your anger, don't sin, but cry out to him. And then fourthly and finally, and if there is any hope, I think, in this psalm, it comes from how it's used later in the Bible. So the psalm does end, hopefully, verse 26, focusing in on the character of God. Rise up and help us, rescue us because of your unfailing love. But there is no verse 27. There are loose ends It ends on a dot, dot, dot. And so what we need to do is go through the lens of the cross. You see, the cross is utterly crucial as we try and understand Psalm 44. It's at the cross where God the Son faces the desolation of actually being deserted, of forsaken, abandoned, rejected by God the Father. It's at the cross we see the God who suffers And through the suffering, it extraordinarily works out his plans and purposes. So at the cross, we see that we don't have a God who is distant from us, but a God who is close. He was with us in suffering. So at the cross, we see his, verse 26, his unfailing love. We must go through the lens of the cross, and not as some kind of 
glib extra at the end or a pastoral add-on as we try and make sense of the world and that we will live happily ever after, really. No, it's vital. That's exactly what Paul does in Romans 8. In Romans 8, Paul quotes from Psalm 44. It's as if, it's as if the cross is the answer to Psalm 44. The, the question left hanging, the dot, dot, dot after verse 26. We don't know where to go, and so Paul says, this is where you go. Do you keep a thumb in Psalm 44, and we can turn to Romans 8 if that's helpful. We've jumped in halfway through an argument in Romans, but the the theoretical argument that Paul is placing for them is that you have wobbly, unsettled Christians who aren't sure where they stand with the Lord. They are concerned about their assurance. They are concerned about how secure they are, and so Paul wants to give them reassurances, comfort, clarity, hope. And so Romans 8 verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, here it is, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see what he says? He says, despite you being in Psalm 44 territory, despite what you're going through, despite what God allows you to go through, with Paul we can be completely confident Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Because at the cross, I take it, Jesus was separated for us, and because we are in Christ Jesus our Lord, so ultimately we are God's, and so we are safe. You see how Romans 8 is the answer to Psalm 44? However much we feel like we're in that territory, abandoned, forgotten, however much it feels like God is asleep. Prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Because of the cross, you can be confident that he loves you and that he is at work. He does rise up and help us and rescue us because of his unfailing love. You can know that you are finally safe in Christ. You can know that he was abandoned so that you will never be abandoned. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that these psalms are real. Thank you that they are are psalms for our times. Lord, help us please to, in the midst of times like that, cling on to the things that the psalmist does, to consider your goodness in the past, 
to commit ourselves to your sovereignty, even though that might confuse us. We might struggle with that. Because we know that you're sovereign and powerful, would we cry out to you? And might we see the difference that the cross makes? Might we see your unfailing love that rescues us in Jesus? And in him we thank you that we are safe. Father, we long that this wouldn't just be a time for us to understand this psalm a bit better. But that we might, with your help, live it. That it would change us. In your son's name. Amen.